the legs of an octopus. Recorded live. You are unmuted. Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 160 was recorded live May 9th, 2013. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson from the west side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, I have my co-host, Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I am doing just fantastic. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, from what I understand is you've been doing a little bit of uh, dive training? Yes, I have. We can get into that and talk about dives and training and uh, looking forward to sharing what I'm doing right now. Excellent. Well, we also have a full chat room, or not full, full, not full enough, but we have a, a, a few good representations. We have uh, Stig and Mark and uh, who's it, Rodney from Kentucky. Welcome to the chat room. Rodney from Kentucky, first timer. Excellent. Glad to have you with us. We'll, we'll say something nasty about him later on, and then he'll feel right. Yeah, usually when the they drop of off, that's the best time to do that. Yeah, yeah we, we're an equal opportunity insulter. Always always up for some new practice. First article we have up, and if you happen to be in the chat room, you get a first crack at it. We have, and i got to be careful with this name again. I was going to ask you how you're going to pronounce that. It is P-H-U-K-E-T, Fuck It Underwater Activist Dive Off Sea Walking Business for Now. I don't, I don't think there's any other way to say that. Fuket? Or uh, P-Huck It? It says, a marine biologist combined with marine police yesterday put a destructive crease oral walking business to flight. The apparent retreat of the underwater tourist business is a victory for the growing band of environmental activists. Let's see, go, kind of go down through. Uh, we, we covered this before, and what's nice about this article is they actually have some photos. So you can see a little bit about what they were referring to. And it's bizarre. They had some angle iron with bamboo railing. So it was literally walking along the bottom of what you're doing. And they show photos of, of people walking. Give them a surface-applied helmet, and they walk across the bottom. The thing that gets me is you look at the photos, there's tropical fish there, but yet these guys are diving in dry suits. Yeah, they are. And they got some sort of dry suits on. Maybe that's the underwater police. Well, it could be. In the one photo, they're showing them with a hacksaw cutting uh, the railings out. And uh, the the reason they they put an end to the business was to help save the coral, because where they had put this rail in, they had essentially destroyed it. They said that mass tourism continues to threaten the marine environment of the whole region, requiring a uh, coastal community to be aware of the need for proper management. Uh, the tourists who were who could not snorkel or scuba dive, were able to descend and walk along the sand wearing helmets supplied with oxygen through the hose from the surface. Okay, let's see what we got next up. We have a river declared safe after a sewage spill. Oh, that's always interesting. It's. I mean, I, I guess it's good that they're admitting that they had a sewage spill. But how many times are they just putting it out and it's not? This one's from uh, Valdosta, Georgia. Uh, the all-clear was given after another major sewage spill sent more than a million gallons of sewage into the waterways. Uh, some people who rely on the rivers to make a living say they, it hits them every time there's a spill. A local dive shop says it affects them when they're unable to get people in for their open water dives. He says it takes a while, not only one of our sources of income, but you take them both away, so now we're sitting on our hands and we got nothing to do. Uh, they have a wastewater management district that will be meeting uh, next month to do address sewage spills and flooding concerns. The dive shop has said that they've lost about $96,000 as a result of the spill. Now, how do, how do you spill a million gallons? I, I, is that just a terminology thing? Pipeline break. Oh, okay. They I had that a pipeline. Be. 
break. Yeah, we have a lot of pipelines that go over the uh, St. Joe River. Yeah. Summer right there in Bering Springs. Summer, summer not freshwater. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> they're, they, have, they have a different type of fish in them. Yep. Maybe that's related to the Phuket. So if it's a pipeline spill, that's that's raw stuff on its way to go. It's not like what we tend to see where it's just didn't meet its, its full filtration, you know, overflow. Probably probably under pressure getting sent to the cleaning center. Yes. That could real be a really crappy mess. Experts warn of mussel infestation. This is up in Lake Mead National Recreation Area. In Nevada, they said invasive quagga mussels are in your lake and they're there forever. So advocates are taking severe measures up front to prevent the infestation in order to avoid billions of dollars in damage to everything aquatic from the valley's ecology to waterworks, bridges, boats, and beaches. They held a workshop. Uh, The divers spoke at a workshop by the Invasive Species Council of B.C. And they go on and they talk about how we're dealing with it now currently in the Great Lakes, which... I think I've seen a couple mussels before. In the Great Lakes? Yeah. Really? Yeah, I, I think there might be some. Uh, boat inspections are where boaters are asked to pull their boats, well, where their boat was last and how long it's been out of the water are needed. She's impressed at the beginning of this province has made to pass stringent legislation to prevent the movement of such invasive aliens and to launch information campaign to alert people the dangers of their spread. They said they're now confident the valley can prevent contamination with the mussel with adequate effort. I disagree with that. Well, that's that's what if I'm thinking. Alre- is. If it's already there, it's too late. Well, if it's you already know, they- there, and I'm not uh, definitely, you can tr- transport it by boat. If you put a yes. boat in and you get it, but I think all of North America's fresh water within the next hundred years will all be infected, and I think it's just going to be natural migration of you know by birds. You can't yep. control where the ducks, where the swans, where the geese land, and they're going to transfer that way. Yeah, sooner or later. They they could slow it down, but if it's in Lake Mead and some of these other lakes, uh, you know, look at how much they tried to fight it in the Great Lakes with mustard paint and all kinds of stuff, and it, you know, it was a losing battle. Yeah. I, I'm not saying they shouldn't try to prevent the spread. I support that, but... If the Great Lakes prove anything, once you see it, it's too late. That's my concern with the Asian carp. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with the Great Lakes. I, I believe be we're already late. too late on that one. Yep. Yeah, so, uh, you know, put up a good fight. You know, if you've got gear that you were in a body of water that had zebras, make sure the zebras, zebras, make sure you take the proper decontamination procedures. Yep. Wash it down, flush it out, but... Next up is we have some divers playing tag to save some turtles. That sounds interesting. Yeah, they some divers did a dive at 70 feet off Juniper... Is it Jupiter? Yeah, Jupiter, Florida. Ten scuba divers, and uh, their mission was to save Hawksbill Sea Turtle by tagging the first dive from Captain Jared Slater's dive boat uh, entered the day was was no joy, but ten minutes into the second dive, they located uh, turtles mosing along a coral ledge. So what they're doing is they're taking tags and placing them on the animal, which the animal's about a foot and a half long from front to back. And they swim when they. Well, I guess what they do is they grab the turtle and they swim with it to the surface. Once they get it to the surface, they uh, they take some measurements. Uh, yeah, they put it on the deck. Yeah. You see what they named the turtle? Kai. Kai. That's not how I read it, which they said was a short version for the boat's name. Slater returned to the boat, uh, the catch site, placed the animal back in the water, and it swam away. They said that 80% of the Hawksbill's turtles they find were born on the beaches of Mexico and the Yucatan Peninsula. The rest originate elsewhere in the Caribbean. Yeah, we don't do a whole lot of tagging. We have, uh, I noticed that up on the board that the, the boat launches, they have instructions for looking for marked fish to report if you catch them or find them. Yeah. Poor sea turtle. I can understand well wanting to study them, but 
you got to feel sorry for the turtle that's now been got a metal tag in each one of his flippers. Yeah, all the other turtles are making fun of him. Yep. Mocking him. 15, he's never going to get a turtle date. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, and then what, so like, you know, turtle, turtle years, you know, is it like, uh, you know, 10 years equal one human year? And then a search is on for Lindbergh's lost French rivals. I was kind of hoping Mac would be here because he'd, he'd get into the search for a plane. Uh, teams are using underwater snor- snorkel, sonar, scuba divers, and new accounts to try and solve an aviation mystery. What happened to uh, the 31-foot-long cloth and wooden biplane that vanished while trying to cross the Atlantic from Paris to New York in 1927? The disappearance of the plane and crew had been a subject of decades of speculation since two French World War I aces took off from an airfield north of Paris. The flight had a two-week jump on Charles Lindbergh, who departed New York in the spirit of St. Louis on May 20th. So they were hoping to, to beat him to it, but they didn't quite make it. Uh, the Frenchmen were attempting the first ever transatlantic crossing and uh, looking for a $25,000 prize. Witnesses at the time say that they saw the plane cross England and Ireland. Crowds gathered in New York Harbor expecting a white plane to make a water landing at the Statue of Liberty. After several days without word, the flight was presumed lost, and the Coast Guard ships started a search and rescue. Yeah, I knew there was a Lindbergh was in a race with some people who were trying to also do it, but they didn't make it. Yeah, that's uh, kind of a rough way to go. So last month, uh, an expedition was started to, or reopened actually to to help find information about the flight. A French aerospace firm whose uh, corporate grandparents built the 450-horsepower engine that would power the plane has enlisted the aid of the U.S. Coast Guard, which was initial search back in 1927. He says if he has enough accurate information as records, we can work backward and construct a search area. He says better data exists today about currents and tides that can help model for the search. Uh, Last year in June 2012, They searched for several weeks without luck. The new search from May 15th to June 7th will deploy additional ships and crew a high-powered magnetometer to detect metal in the seafloor, a longer cable, and a remote-operated vehicle. He has some new information. Interview last year with 95-year-old fisherman in St. Pierre. The man said as a boy he spoke to another fisherman who saw the plane go down in thick fog on May 10th, 1927. The fisherman also heard the two pilots cry for help. While the story is secondhand, it's providing... A starting point for a search grid, even if the plane isn't found. Others involved in the search plan a ceremony at sea to commemorate the two French flyers. God, that sounds like a needle in a haystack, doesn't it? It sure does. I mean, we know within a mile of stuff we're looking for, and we can't find it. And that's in fresh water. And here they're going shallower. out in salt water and something that may be there. Yeah. I mean, you've got you got a whole Atlantic Ocean. I mean, good luck to them. And most likely, what they're going to find is everything else. Yeah, and airplanes don't make big targets when they crash. They make lots of little targets. Yeah. Well, and my theory is, they, test. is that every storm, since they go down, just moves them someplace else. I mean, you've got mm-hmm. an airfoil that flies in the air. Water is going to move that all around. And then this is this is a cloth and wood, so. There's not a whole lot they're going to find. Probably all that's left is that engine. Yeah, probably just the engine. So so good luck to them if they find it. Yeah, and if they find it, an aircraft engine from that old, it's going to be one big clump of rock. Yeah, if you were standing next to it, you probably wouldn't even realize that was an engine. You're going to have to do it like they find meteorites. It's just going to be so magnetic. And then uh, kind of in a related story, uh, Nova Scotia shipwreck swallowed by a sea ignored by the government. And, geez, this is another one. It's like Mac picked a, a week not to make it. This one would get, we, we get them all worked up on this. And what the complaint is, is that in around Nova Scotia, they say there's about 10,000 shipwrecks, uh, treasures of uh, sailing ships, steamships, paddle wheelers, most from the 17 and 1800s. The wrecks are valuable in their own right. Uh, and they said that if... Uh, delicate vessels are left unrecovered for too long, they will risk becoming lost to the frigid Atlantic waters where they are. The Nova Scotia government is struggling to balance its books. It says it cannot afford to make such explorations a priority. Private explorers, meanwhile, are keen to step in. 
So they have uh, some some explorers are conducting classes on shipwreck hunting, including underwater photography, uh, which helps them detect objects as well as through sound technology. Uh, they say it's adventure tourism and a professional training all in one, except for one glitch. Shipwreck salvaging is illegal. While the school itself will not be stripping the wrecks of their artifacts, the initiative is a step forward in the private sector in this final frontier of exploration. So what we've got here is you have the government who believes that nobody should touch anything until they get around to finding it. And then you have the private sector who says, if we leave it for when you get the time and money, which you'll never have, they'll be lost forever. Yeah. Well, maybe if they stay only semi-involved, as in aware but not deeply active, there'll be enough latitude for the organizations to get in there and do their diving, their archaeology, but not pillage the wrecks. Well, and I like the approach that we've got where we, we discover them and document them, and then you, you put together a plan. Because the government's not going to have the, the money, the time, or the effort to go and do it. And this this is in Canada, so they, they may be operate a little bit different than we do, but not a whole lot. They said for divers to do any kind of reconnaissance work, a diver must obtain a Category A heritage research permit through the Department of Natural Resources. They said only two were handed out in all of 2012. The department was unable to comment on whether those were for exploration or environmental assessments. See, how, how do you go and get a permit for something that you don't know is there yet? Yeah. So that would be yeah. like us saying, okay, you've got to go out and get a permit. And I'm sure in the permit it has details of like, okay, what is it you're looking for? Yeah. Looking and what's for it, anything I can find. Uh, where's it located? Yeah. Yeah, where's it, where's it located? Mm-hmm. And then once you find it, you probably got to give it to them, and you can't go back and visit it until they've had time to review it, which will take them two or three years. Such is the way of government agencies. Yep. Good intentions wrapped in bureaucracy. Well, we hope they're good intentions. You know, you, you kind of assume that, even if they're not. We're not conspiracy theorists or anything. Well. <laughs> well, that, that uh, I was just reading something this week where uh, they're now trying to Anybody who does not think like everybody else is now an extremist. An extremist is qualifies you to be on a terrorist watch list. Yeah. So if you do not agree with the majority of the population, you're now labeled an extremist. Why does that not surprise me? Yeah. Also, I was shocked to uh, uh, see some of the classified documents that were unclassified talking about the extent to which they're recording out uh, uh, phone conversations, and, I, and I'm sure this right now is being re- recorded. I mean, we're recording it, but somebody else is because when they talked about the Boston, Boston, Boston bombers, Boston, Boston, yeah, my my mother coming out there, uh, the Boston bombers that they're able to retroactively listen on telephone and cell phone conversations. So they're recording conversations and then going back and pulling through and right, geez. of course, all done legally. Of course. Yeah. It's not illegal unless we listen to it. Yeah, exactly. We can we can record all you want, and they get a permit and go mm-hmm. back to it. So that's kind of scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I, it's not smoking unless you inhale. Yeah. Yeah, so there, there's our political moment. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and as uh, the, the great president said, I did not have sex with that woman. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't sex. Well, didn't they later clarify that it's fine to lie about sex? It's actually expected. I, th- I thought that was the defense. Mm. In the chat room, we're here from the government. We're here to help. <laughs> See, actually, some of some of our chat room listeners could be handlers. They're not doing that good a job, though. Well, that does it for Scuba and the News. Kind of ran through that quick tonight. Now, we do have some potentially cool scuba gear. We have some nanotechnology trying to make its way. I got some think tanks going on. A furnace accelerator startup developing an anti-fogging technology. The and I, I don't necessarily understand what they're doing. It's designed to form and incubate and launch new companies 
created from intellectual property and patents developed by universities and research institutions. The Arizona-based startup's objective is to integrate its patent nanotechnology into specific manufacturing and fabrication lines. The fog control technology has drawn interest from corporate clients because of the patented method for manipulating moisture on surface to maintain a clear field of view. The technology controls the behavior of water droplets by forming a 2D layer on the surface, resulting in clear field of vision. Initial tests have shown that the treatment lasts not just hours or days, but for the life of the product on select surfaces. Wow. Current commercialization development of the nanotech includes areas of vision protection for athlete sports, such as football, scuba diving, skiing, and snowboarding. You know, there was a company who did that uh, a while ago. Uh, They were trying to develop a product that would displace water. Displace water? And prevent rust. Displace water and prevent rust, yeah. And uh, they they had multiple, multiple uh, formulations, and they finally got one that worked. You know what they called it? What's that? WD-40. Ah. As in water displacement number 40. Ah, makes sense. So there's your trivia for tonight. Well, when you said water displacement, I thought that's what beer was. No, I thought beer was a diuretic that you rented. Uh, yeah, only temporarily. But I'm all for that. It's a good use of technology. You wonder how many of those type of projects are sitting around there. You know, DARPA's got a whole list of things that it's created over the years that we'd love to have. Actually, I want their spare parts. You know, those those million-dollar projects where they go, eh, I don't need any more. Mm. They can just ship those over here and we'll take them apart and use them. You want a million-dollar military surplus toilet seat? Well, I, yeah, my toilet seat, I could, I could about do for a replacement. I'd do that. Sure. Yeah, that'd be fine. Out the but, country where you live, I thought you had an outhouse. Well, you laugh. That's on my project list is making a new outhouse. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a whole long story, but yeah, there, that, that, is, that is a genuine project. Okay. We, we do have fancy indoor plumbing. Just need an outhouse out by the barn. And that's what the barn is. <laughs> I'm, not even, I'm not even worried about the barn, at least to my concerns. Well, I've come up with a project that I think I'm going to try to develop. It's What's that? A, it's an app for uh, iPhone or actually any smartphone, but I'm going to try to develop it for an iPhone first. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, you know pictures of fruit and different uh, natural items. And I'm going to market it as a scratch and sniff app. Ah, scratch and sniff. Mm-hmm. Mm. You may have something there. See how many people buy it. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's what, what was it? P.T. Barnum said there's a sucker born every minute. Yep. And Steve's saying it's a little bit like the pet rock. Well, yeah, I actually got a pet rock, and it came in a box. I can remember yeah. the pet rock. Randy got it. It all smells like a phone screen. It smells like the palm of your hand. <laughs> well, what you do is you have a contest to uh, the person who guesses what the smell really is. Uh, there we something. go. There we go. I'm sure there's some things that it'll smell like that we don't want to know about. <laughs> Just the entertainment value alone of what people would guess. Mm. Now, the scuba one, what you could do is you could say that uh, it uses GPS coordinate adjusts the smell based on your location. Well, it's still in development, so we'll see how it ends up. But I'm yeah. going to have more time to work on it soon. Yeah. Well, I just—I got so many of those projects too. So many, so many apps. Okay. Well, that finishes off Scuba in the News. Make sure that you head on over to the Facebook website or the Facebook website. Facebook—we're almost acting like Facebook is the internet. Head on over to Facebook and like our Scuba Obsessed page, facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed. Also on Access Scuba forward slash Scuba Obsessed, and that's accessscuba.com. And I don't get over there as much as I as I as I probably should. I'm not even on for somebody who's online 16 hours a day. It's like I don't get out to many of these social media sites all that often. And I'm and I'm actually trying to wean it down. I've I've learned when I get home from work, I I go and do all my projects before I even touch the computer. That's a good idea. I kind of do the same thing. Work until it's dark and. Yeah, that, that's a constraint is the good weather and conditions and other things. 
because I can fill any available time with technology. That's not a problem. See, and then we're also on Twitter and then Scoop It. Uh, Scoop It, I've been a little slow on the feed the last week, so I'll catch up on that. But there's always articles. In fact, there's some rejects that we didn't cover. In the, hard to believe there were some rejects that we didn't cover on the show that I've posted out there on Scuba, Scoop It. Okay. Some of it that just don't lend themselves so much to the podcast talking about. But there, some people may be interested in so they're scuba-related. I've also done another one. If you go to Scoop It and look at some of the other – I don't know if uh, – as, as an administrator, I don't know how it looks on the other side of the fence, but I also have another topic, which is just technology. So if you want to follow technology and trends and future developments, that's what I also do another feed on there along with the scuba diving. Well, I've tried to post a few things on your uh, Facebook page that I mm-hmm. thought you might be interested in. Yeah, I, I did see. Uh, let's let's take a look at that. I, I'm bad about actually even clicking it yeah, I'm, I'm Facebook sometimes drives me nuts because they it's hard to find stuff so you have to kind of play around so let's see I got oh, yeah. it this was the aquarium uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium is going to have a sleepover on World Oceans Day June 8th and 9th uh, you can bring your sleeping bag and sleep in the aquarium and fall asleep next to the fish I thought that would be neat for a Boy Scout or Girl Scout adventure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that, those are excellent projects. And a lot of your museums, if even if you're not here, talk to your museum. A lot of them do, will do these lock-ins or sleep-ins with scouts. It's it's an excellent program. And many of them actually have stuff set up to do. You know, they'll, they'll do a, a quick tour, and it's usually after the rest of the museum's closed, so you're not dealing with huge crowds. So I know, like in the Chicago area, you got Sheds Aquarium. I believe does something similar. Uh, there's also the uh, uh, Field Museum. Yeah. Yep. And if you're industry. ever a, a scuba diver, if you ever go to Epcot, take the Epcot Dive Adventure. You have to ask about it, uh, but they will let you scuba dive in the Epcot Living Seas tank, and it's one of the neatest things you'll ever do. Now, did you get a chance to do that? Yeah, I've done that. Oh wow! And uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, it's it's one of those uh, once in a lifetime. Don't know that I'd do it a second time, but yeah, I'm glad I did it once because it was so much fun. And just to be able to have that experience is something I would really recommend to any diver who's got you know, if you can do any kind of buoyancy control and keep yourself from laying on the bottom, you'll love it. It's great. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be something. I always up for a new experience. If you're any kind of a ham or you like to play it up a little bit, you can have a ball with it, playing with the people in the restaurant and the people in the museum or, you know, look at the fish tanks. They love to interact with the divers. See, you have to do is come up with a whole bunch of pranks you can do while you're down there. Oh, yeah. Now, do, do, you, do you get to wear a wetsuit? Yes. Okay, yeah. So you got, yeah. so you they, got, they got all supply, sorts of stuff. They supply everything. Okay. You know, including, uh, you can buy a video. They'll give you a certificate. Uh, you know, it's... Not a cheap dive. I think when I was there, it was about a hundred, might be a hundred, hundred and twenty-five dollars for a for the dive. But you get a behind-the-scenes tour and uh, admission to the park for the day, and it, it's it's well worth it in my mind. Especially if you got family or friends that can go ahead and go in and be waiting for you uh, in the the aquarium or in the restaurant. Oh, that'd be neat. Because that that restaurant is an excellent restaurant they have there. Yeah, I, I can remember going, and it's been a long time, so. I'm sure there's nothing in common from when I went. That was probably about 1985, 84, 85. <laughs> but that was probably, uh, it still ranks as one of the best 10 meals I ever had. So if you go, tell them Darren from Scuba Obsessed sent you. Yeah, there you go. That that, that will help you a lot. Usually a, a, a frisk and a uh, hour visit to the tox tank. but That will get you on the government watch list. Yeah. Or should I say government listen list? Yeah, I was just thinking of all the different signs that you could have pre-made up. So you were down there, you know, go up to the glass, mm-hmm. pull one out, help I can't swim. <laughs> uh, let's see, what else could you do? Those bubbles are from beans. Yeah, all, all sorts of uh, things that could happen. Well, speaking of adventures, uh, I understand that you've been having one for the last, what, has it been about a month now you've been doing that? Yeah, we took about uh, three or four weeks of classes for tech configuration and advanced nitrox diving. 
And so now we're doing the open water work. And it's uh, Rick Sass is the instructor. I'm going through subaquatic sports and services in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Give him a plug. And uh, he, he's very good to remind you that starting off, going from single tank to doubles tank and a tech configuration is like starting diving all over. You know, you, the principles remain the same, but you know it's like when you went from a wetsuit to a dry suit. You got to learn to do buoyancy control all over. Uh, there's different skills you need with being able to shut the tanks down, you know, and and you, your mindset changes because you've always got to consider the surface is not an option. You know, I can go shallower, but I need to solve my problem underwater. So I've been working on my gear configuration and. I uh, did get two dives in last week, Saturday. We were supposed to dive on Sunday also, but my dry suit leaked so bad on Saturday that I was not ready to dive on Sunday. I needed to work on gear configuration and try to patch the dry suit. I think I've got more holes in my dry suit there than you've got in your wetsuit. <laughs> that, that's that's going to so be a challenge. It, it may be time for a new dry suit. So, you know, I've, I've bought a 55-gallon drum of uh, uh, Aquaseal, and I've been relaminating the exterior of the dry suit one spot at a time. Uh, but I'm afraid it may not make it because I've got a leak in a seam, and it just keeps following the seam. Mm. So I might be able to slow it down, or I may end up using duct tape on it for a dive or two until I get convinced that I'm going to have to buy the new dry suit. So we'll be able to report some firsthand experience of driving a new dry suit or diving a new dry suit and buying a new dry suit maybe in a couple of weeks. Wow. But I did get my tech buddy from uh, Blue Buddy. Uh-huh. And those of you who follow the show will know we had a, uh, a Kickstarter project that we talked about as new in the news. And I jumped on as a supporter for the tech buddy. And I got tech buddy number 36 from them. Serial number thirty-six. Thirty-six. And gave it its uh, gave it its first two dives in Gull Lake, and uh, posted it on my Facebook page. And really looks like a, a neat device. Measures water temperature and depth, and you can plug in your um, tank pressures and your tank sizes, and it will calculate air consumption, surface air consumption, and you can look at your nitrogen loading. And you know, there's some really some neat neat analysis that you can do with it. So I'm looking forward to doing more diving with the, the tech buddy and, you know, kind of recording it. Uh, it's a automated dive logger. So. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice backup for uh, a computer. That way you've got the two sources. Like on my computer, I can download my profile and see what I did. But yeah, I saw the charts that you posted out there. Those, those look pretty nice. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, I use a 30-second uh, interval for measurements. So, you know, it's you're up and down. It seems like, you know, a foot or two here, a foot or two there, it catches it. So, you know, it's one of those where did it take the recording when I was breathing in or breathing out? Because I, was, I noticed that uh, my buoyancy was to the point that I was changing it just by breathing in, breathing out. I was moving up and down. Well, I, I noticed so, I'm... So I have a lot of... A lot of tweaking to do to my, my gear. Well, I, I noticed when I first started downloading the logs, I was shocked at how many un... I, I, they weren't uncontrolled, but they were above the threshold that is recommended for ascents. And I thought I was doing pretty good. And one thing I did realize is that because I had my, my computer, and I like to tuck it in under my arm, when I would pick the computer up and put it to my face... That was enough to trigger too rapid of an ascent. So I, I learned now I, I pick it up much slower just so that it doesn't log it as I'm going too quick. Now, kind of back on the tech class, uh, how was it for the gear? Were you shocked with any of the gear that you had to, to get that wasn't what you expected that you'd, you'd be having to purchase? Well, I was hoping I could use my, my primary regulator because I bought a good regulator You know, when I bought a regulator. But then I started looking at it. Well, that regulator is 25 years old, um, still well-maintained, still dives great. It's an ice cold water regulator. I've only had one free flow with it, and that was when I was at 140 feet. And 
got water up my nose and coughed water into it and froze it up. Uh, That's the only other problem I've ever had with it. But, you know, as Rick says, you really want to put your life on a regulator that's designed for 130 feet when you're at 180 and it's 25 years old. And what's your backup? Because you're going to need a, you know, you're going to dive double post. You're going to have double tanks. So you have two regulators. Uh, What are you going to use for your backup? You know, or do you want the 25-year-old one to be your backup? So that was, okay, I'm going to buy two new regulators. And uh, then we talked about, you know, I I understood the need for a seven-foot hose or a six-foot hose if you're cave diving uh, because you may go through some openings that are not wide enough or big enough for two people to get through. So one's got to follow the other. But my comment was, why do you need that in tech diving? And they came back, you know, well, you may be in a wreck uh, or you may be in a situation where you've got some swimming to do and, you know, It gives you more room between you and your buddy. Uh, The other piece of it was, and I'm I'm slowly catching on or buying into this, um, tech diving is team diving. And you want every member of the team to have their gear configured as closely as possible to everybody else on the team. Now, it may be a different regulator, but it's routed the same way. Uh, You know, the lights are in generally the same place. Um, things are clipped on the same way, you know, so if you're deep, uh, you know, it, it becomes like muscle memory. You, you do things enough times, it comes a second nature. Well, if you're looking at your buddy's gear and his gear is configured totally different than yours, when the crap hits the fan, you want to be able to, uh, handle the situation without a lot of added stress. So having gear configured the same just makes it, you know, more of a team diving. Even if you're diving with somebody you've never dove with before, if their gear is configured very similar to yours, there's a lot more similarity there. So I, uh, I'm going along with it. Uh, Paul's commenting, you know, he's as a, uh, a cave diver. Um, I think he's supporting a lot of what I'm saying here. So that's kind of the, the route I'm going. Uh, my, my thought is you always listen to the instructors, at least when you're going to the class, because if you spend your time fighting with them or disagreeing, you're not going to get the most out of it. So you right. you drink the Kool-Aid, you do it as long as they're not telling you to do something that you don't believe is safe. Mm-hmm. And then when you're done, then you evaluate it. Because right. what I could see is that once you're out of the class, it, that probably depends on what the rest of your dive buddies are, are diving to. So maybe... Exactly. Exactly. You, you could be, you know, I'm, I'm configuring my stuff like the class and the people I'm diving with in the class. When I get done, you know, if I start diving with Bob Sweeney and Bob's diving a rebreather and I'm diving open circuit, well, obviously our gear is going to be configured differently. Right. You know, uh, and if I'm diving with Kirk or some of the other guys that, you know, have already been through the, the, the tech stuff, their gear is going to be configured differently. So, you know, a lot too depends on what you're diving, whether you want, you know, in a lot of our Great Lakes diving, you don't really need a super great light because there's enough ambient light. But, you know, you may want a couple good backup lights or, uh, mm-hmm. you know. So I'm going along with it. So I, I ended up buying uh, an Apex Tech regulator set. It comes as a set with a left hand and right hand. So you've got the um, the first stages are configured to go inside and your hoses all come off of one direction so it's a very tight compact uh, first stage instead of having an octopus like first stage where you've got hoses coming off everywhere like a, the legs on an octopus um, that really helps cut down the snags over your head and if you have to reach back and get to your valves uh, the hoses are out of the way so you're not fighting hoses to get to your valves so that was one purchase I had to make um, I already had a wing and a back plate and that is very similar to diving the Zegel Ranger that I dive as a Sport BC. Um, the Ranger can actually be set up and used for doubles, uh, but I went ahead with the backplate and wing um, and the harness to be consistent. And it also is a little tighter and more secure than the Ranger is. So we may see how that ends up. We may end up going back to the Ranger eventually but we'll play it by ear. The nice thing is this BC has more lift than my Ranger does, and I like that extra lift um, if necessary. Um, 
hose configurations are different because you split your hoses. You know, you've got your BC hose coming off of one regulator and your dry suit hose coming off of another. So you've got backup and redundancy. If you have to kill one post or shut down one first stage, you know, you still can get buoyancy compensation from your other first stage. So, you know, that that's one thing different with doubles. Um, a couple other things, you know, just lift bags. Uh, they use two colored lift bags. A yellow lift bag is your primary or, you know, a surface marker bag. Primarily use a lift bag that you would use as, you know, if you send up your yellow one, everything's good. I'm just here to hang. If you send up a red one, that's a flag to the surface that I've got a problem. Somebody come down and see what's going on, which is a nice Which thing. one's the uh, alert? Yellow is normal. Okay. Uh, red is a problem. Okay. So, you know, again, but that's a signaling thing with with the crew or with the team uh, and also making sure the captain of the boat or whoever you're diving with understands that that's the program you're going to use. But it's a nice way of differentiating. So you're carrying two lift bags, a primary and a backup, which means two reels, uh, primary and a backup, um, you know, two lights, uh, two knives, you know, two of everything because, again, uh, you've got to solve your problem where you are. You know, the surface is not an option. And that's the big thing uh, is you've got to, in everything you do, you've got to consider that the surface is not an option when you're doing deco diving. So solve it at depth. So that's where I'm at so far. Um, got to get out and get more trim and practice and get used to my configuration and shoot some bags from different depths without losing my buoyancy. Uh, learn to do some flips and spins and, you know, just get used to handling the different buoyancy characteristics of those doubles. So it'll be interesting over the next few weeks. I hope to get most of my in-water work done before Memorial Day. And then we'll be coming back and going back into the classroom for the Trimix classes. Nice. Now, do you have any sort of uh, drills that you have to work on? You mentioned buoyancy, but are they, are they doing any valve drills? or? Yeah, I've got uh, standard valve drills, you know, Turn off the one right post, turn off the left post, turn off the isolator valve. Um, we're, we've got to, as a drill, as a team, do a, uh, a shared regulator drill where I actually pass off your, your six-foot hose, and then you're going to follow the other diver. The, the, the out-of-air diver becomes the lead diver because if there's something, you know, if I'm the lead diver and I'm dragging them behind me, if they get hung up and I pull the hose out of their mouth, I could leave them and not know they're not behind me. If the out-of-air diver is in front of you, um, you're going to know if he loses his regulator. Right. Yeah, or if you get hung up and he, you pull the regulator out of his mouth, he's going to turn around and come right back to you versus, you know, he's already gone through the hole or whatever the situation is. So we've got to do a couple drills where we're going to swim around, you know, switch regulators and then swim around under the platform or through the platform just to, show that we can maintain buoyancy independently and change depths independently, but still maintain buoyancy as a, as a team together. So uh, then we've got to shoot bags from different, different depths without, you know, moving uh, up or down in our depths too much. The idea being that you want to be able to, you know, if you're doing a, you, you get to a 40 foot stop and you've got to shoot a bag from 40 feet, you can kind of just hover at 40 feet while you shoot the bag and the added buoyancy of the bag going up doesn't drag you up to 35 or 30 or 20 feet before you recover and drop back down. So you bleed air out of your suit into the bag, where most of the time, you know, when I shot a bag from the bottom, I would always be heavy, pull out my regulator, my primary regulator, and dump it into the bag, you know, or get enough to the bag to start to the surface, and away it would go. Well, here you're, you're wanting to do it without being heavy, so you've got to do it from fixed depth. So you learn to use air out of your BC. Uh, that way you're less likely to have a free flow, and you're using the same air. You're just transferring buoyancy from the BC to the bag. And then as you send the bag to the surface, you start popping a little air back into the BC to compensate uh, for what you've sent up the surface to the bag. Ah. So it's it's just practices. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things, just being a, getting a little bit of experience in timing, so it's good. Yep, yep. So that's the program I'm going through, and it's uh, it's good to to renew, refresh, and and uh, keep learning. So that was kind of the gear configuration. 
You know, now I'm using, you know, I, I had tank inventory. I've had two 30 cubic foot and two 50 cubic foots. So I don't know if I'm going to trade some of the a couple of the 30s for 40s or maybe trade of one of each. But uh, a lot depends on how deep I'm going and what my gas requirements are going to be. So, you know, I had most of the gear in advance, but I've had the gear for a long time, so it's time to update my gear. Yeah. So, that's my retirement present to myself is uh, spending some money on my gear and taking these classes and uh, looking forward to, you know, I'm taking an early retirement. Tomorrow's my last day of work. The last day. Last day of work. 26 years plus with the same company. And Amazing. I'm able to get out at 55 and retire. And so I'm going to uh, get out early and spend some time diving and having fun. Yeah, I'm I I'm convinced I'm going to be working until I'm in my mid 70s. Yeah, so anytime you can get out early, that's that's what my dad did. He did. He retired at 55, and he still worked other jobs, but you know it was definitely a lot different pressure yep. and stress. Yep. Well, I'm going to take some time off, kind of a sabbatical for a while, and uh, enjoy the summer and see what the fall and winter brings, and maybe next year we'll we'll find a job at a hardware store or be a greeter at Walmart or do something that's fun. You, you sure you haven't been talking to my dad? That's that's what his his plan was. Yeah, I think I may try to find a dive shop that needs a old fart diver that wants to hang around and talk diving all the time. Oh, that gives me an idea for a future scuba joke. So I'll just have to take a note on that one. Okay. Well, excellent. I'm glad that the, the class is going well. It's one that Jim Kleeman and I have have wanted to do for quite a while now, and I think we have to commit to it to do it for next year. I don't, I don't see anybody doing it this year. I still got to get that dry suit. I'm getting a dry suit test tank in the backyard, but I, I don't still don't have a dry suit. Dry suit test tank? Yeah. Is that cool. a trough for the uh, horses? Yeah. It, well, it, it can double the, the trough. We'll, we'll put it close enough to fence I could reach in. Oh, the, the chat room was asking uh, which agency that was with. Uh, you're doing a training. At, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually going through NAWI. Now, you know, okay. I've got cards from Nawi, Pouty, and TDI. So this currently is a, a Nawi shop that I'm working with. So Good. Good. So if, if anybody has any questions or suggestions, you can send them to us at the show at Scoob Obsessed, and we'll take a look at them and answer them on the air if we can. Uh, also, I want to do a shout-out to Oren Noah, who and uh, uh, the third in Monterey, California, said that he uh, – Helped uh, save another diver that he was he was diving with, and he, I don't know if he really wants me to talk about it, but I will anyway, to, to the risk of having me as a Facebook friend. Um, and I guess as the situation goes, he was down at 50 feet, and a uh, diver swam over and showed him his pressure gauge where it was less than 500 pounds. Uh, they had no time to swim over the anchor line, so he put him on his long hose and did a blue water ascent. So great job, Noah. I mean, Oren. And... Uh, you know, it shows what training will enable you to do. And I think we're, I mean, do you have anything else you want to plug before we get to the end of the show, Jim? Uh, no, nothing really. Just get out and, you know, get wet or, or dry if you're going dry. You know, you want to stay dry if you're going dry, but don't be afraid to go dry and get wet. Certainly. Well, let me see here. Gosh. And just I, I still, if everybody's keeping track, I won't even tell you how long it's been. I desperately need to get in the water, and I don't see it happen this weekend. I've, we're hitting graduation season, and we have uh, quite a few friends who all have graduation age kids, so it's going to be tough. Going to be tough. I might my my only well then also my son's got baseball, my daughter's got softball, so we're just booked. I was going to say it might be easier to go diving during the week, but I, I don't know if even that's the case. Have you been, did the buoy come out yet? I uh, no, I don't think the the cook buoy has come online yet. Last time I checked, it wasn't. And I don't think anyone's been out in the lake yet to uh, to check the status of the dive markers. Yeah, I, I know that uh, Bob hasn't been able to uh, to do any diving. He's still in his outage and training. So let's see, I'm, I'm pulling up the buoy now. Maybe we'll, we'll get lucky and it'll have shown up today. Because we're at the point, I don't know what they're waiting for yet. No, they're still still on last year's settings. 
Well, the Holland Bowie might be out. Well, let's pull that one up. Yes, it is. Oh, good. So Holland Bowie is out. So that means that's they probably was there Bowie off of Holland. Yeah, they're calling it the Limnotech Holland Bowie. Oh, okay. I'll have to find where that one's at. Yeah, if you go, if you, actually, if you go to the the Bowie for the Cook on the map, there's yeah. another square up there oh, close okay. to Holland. Okay. And it, it shows it shows. Gosh, on the map. Yeah, there's three buoys that are showing in Lake Michigan that uh, University of Michigan, Michigan Tech are doing. And the Holland buoy has data. The Cook buoy doesn't yet. And then the other one is Ludington. So they have three. And that's not including the uh, other buoys that are by other organizations. I think there's a couple buoys by NOAA that are out in the middle of the lake. But, yeah, I'm 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 ready. And, oh, I did get a new uh, uh, dive vehicle oh really this last week I, I picked up a pickup truck ah great so the explorer i'm kind of questioning it needs it needs a little no, it's not bad condition but it needs a little bit of uh, suspension work done uh you you don't notice it but you can see the the wears going on and then the transmission is kind of acting a little iffy so uh so I, i've i've backed it up with a pickup so we now have more vehicles than drivers at this point in time, which won't last long as my daughter gets to driving age. But uh, we're we're already there, so we got that uh, insured this week. So now will be good for towing boats. Yeah. Well, I guess it's that time. Thanks, everybody who came in the chat room. Everybody who listens online, we appreciate you as well. Uh, we record live on Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern time in the United States. Yeah, the, the chat room. Scuba utility vehicle, SUV. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. So are you ready for the particularly bad scuba joke of the week? Okay. A dive instructor was breaking in a new dive master. Before the dive master's first trip, the instructor gave him advice on the best place to eat, shop, and stay overnight. The next morning, as the dive instructor was preparing for the, dives, the day's dive charter, he noticed his new dive master is missing. He called him up wondering where he was at. The dive master answered the phone sobbing, said he couldn't get out of his room. You can't get out of your room, the instructor asked. Why not? The dive master replied, well, there are only three doors in here. One's to the bathroom, one's the closet, and the other has a sign on it saying, do not disturb. Okay. Yeah. Yep. You know, I, I think we could redo that joke. Instead of being a dive master, make them an assistant instructor. An assistant instructor? Yeah. Is that, is that yeah. more a course for the way assistant instructors are? Um, I'm not going to comment on that other than what I already said. <laughs> okay. Well, until next time, go out there and get wet. Stay safe. And remember, I don't think we heard anybody in tonight's broadcast, did we? Not that more. Hmm. We'll have to try again harder next week. Recording has been completed.